Well, we're in a sermon series digging into the Bible to find out what it says about work. And while we've already learned that work is good and is a reflection of God, we've also learned from the scriptures that because we're in a fallen, broken world, work itself is not a curse. It's good. But it has been cursed. And in a way that makes it hard and very often frustrating. Back in the 70s, Studs Terkel wrote a best-selling book simply titled Working. And in that book, he's not a Christian, in that book he interviewed men and women from every walk of life about their jobs. And they told him their likes and dislikes and fears and problems all related to the workplace. Basically, it's a 640-page survey of people in America and what they think about their jobs from grave diggers to Hollywood studio heads. And I want you to hear, after he listened to all of them, hear what he wrote in his introduction to this book. And I quote, This book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence. To the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers as well as accidents, about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is above all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded. It is about a search too for daily meaning as well as daily bread. For recognition as well as cash. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Well, all right. Makes you really excited to get on back out there on Monday. Thank you, studs. Very helpful. Not. But, right? Honestly, there's some truth to what he's saying, isn't there? There is some truth to what he is saying. To some degree, work can be at times humiliating and can feel at times more like a drudgery of death than life. So does the Bible have anything to say about work that would breathe some life into it? Oh, yes. God would not leave unaddressed the 50 or more hours a week that most of us spend in the workplace. So turn with me in your Bibles, and I hope you have a Bible with you, because, oh my goodness, we're going to go different places in the Bible today. So bring a Bible with you if you come to Grace Fellowship. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and when you find it, just hold your place there, because I want to give you some background before I read it. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, find it, hold your place, and I want to give you some background before I read it. Here's what I want you to understand. When Paul wrote this letter to Christians in the city of Ephesus, to talk to them about relationships and conflict and marriage and home and parenting and work, he knew that the early church was filled with slaves and servants. Did you know that? Historians estimate that the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, one out of five were slaves. In the country of Italy, it was as high as one out of three. In fact, slaves and servants had flooded the first century early church. They had flooded the early church And responded to the gospel, the message of the gospel, more than most. Why? Why? Well, because this message of the gospel, 
This message of the gospel gave them something they'd never had before. Something that in spite of all the humiliation and drudgery and sometimes even crushing nature of their work, still made their work meaningful. Meaningful and satisfying and bearable. So you can joke about being a slave to your job, but you're not. And you can talk about how miserable you are in your job. But I suspect that the people hearing this letter for the first time were more miserable than you are. And you can even talk about how you're so poorly paid and overworked. But I believe many of the people hearing this letter for the first time were paid less and worked more because they were slaves. And so if this theology of work, and that's what it is, it's a theology of work. How should we think about work? If this theology of work that Paul gave to slaves and servants in the first century early church could enable them to work to the glory of God. Do you think it could help us in our jobs today? I think so. So now you follow along as I begin reading in Ephesians 6 verse 5. And as I read it, I'm going to, the New King James, which is my version, uses the word servant. But every time I get there, I'm going to say the word slave instead. Because in the original manuscript, which was written in Greek, the word is doulos. And it does mean slave, not servant. Slave. So I'm going to read it that way every time. Ephesians 6 verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling in sincerity of heart. As to, say it, Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of, say it, Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the, say it, Lord. And not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. Whether he is a slave or free. And you masters... Do the same things to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, do you hear how God's word frames up our work in a way that changes how you see it and therefore should change how and why you do it. Theology is never this thing off to the side that wouldn't that be interesting to just talk about, but it's unrelated to real life. Ideas have consequence. Theology shapes. Theology is what you think about an area according to God's word. And as you think that, it changes What you do and why you do it. What you do and why you do it. 
Look at how God's word frames up work in a way that changes how you see it and should change how and why you do it. So now with that framework in place, I want to pick up where I left off last week. Last week I told you I wanted to take two weeks to first warn you and point out what I think are some of the biggest dangers that you're going to face. And then I said I wanted to give you some of the best decisions you could make as you head in to the workplace. Last week we looked at the dangers. If you weren't here, get online, catch up, listen to that. But today I want to focus on best decisions you can make. So, what are some of the best decisions you could make as you head into the workplace? Here's the first, number one. Number one, you're going to have to decide. Decide that you're going to live like Daniel, holding on to your integrity, even if it costs you. And it might. Remember last week we looked at Joseph Do you always have an immediate, just unbelievable blessing for doing the right thing? He ran from sexual temptation and it put him in prison as he was falsely accused of rape. We do the right thing as unto the Lord. Sometimes you get blessed for it. Sometimes you don't. And in the workplace, you're going to find that. Hold on to your integrity, even if it costs you, and it might. You will be tempted and even pressured to leave your integrity at the door. When you step into the workplace. And why am I bringing up Daniel for this point? Why am I talking about Daniel here? Well, if you know your Bible at all or grew up in church, you might remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den, right? I'm old enough that that was flannel graph. Stick a lion on there, stick Daniel on there. But you might remember the story, but do you remember why he landed there? Do you remember what put him in the lion's den? It was a work-related problem as co-workers were jealous of Daniel being promoted so highly, but they couldn't find any dirt on Daniel, but they wanted to bring him down. Does that sound like anything that happens in the workplace today? Oh, I wish the Bible was relevant for today, don't you? That it had anything to say about stuff that goes on in real life. Shut up. It does. Oh, how it does. You read your Bible and you just... Constantly say, oh my goodness, that's exactly what's happening today. And here, this helps me know what I ought to do. There's how Daniel landed in the lion's den. You see, as a young man, Daniel was taken captive from his land, from his family, from everything he was familiar with. Babylon had taken, and they took the best first. They took the best and the brightest and ripped them out of the land. So Daniel was a teenager when he was jerked away from his home, family, friends, land, And drug off to Babylon, and he was chosen for a three-year fast-track training program to serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar have a fish logo on his chariot or not? Sweet guy, treating people right, a blessing to work for, no doubt. No, wicked pagan king. And Daniel's been chosen for this fast-track, three-year training program to serve in the government of a pagan king. In fact, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Let's look at some of Daniel's resume. What do we know about Daniel? Why would he be chosen? What's going on with Daniel? Daniel is in your Old Testament. If you hadn't been there in a while, say hello, Old Testament. Daniel chapter 1, look at verse 17. And as for these four young men, that's referring to Daniel and his three friends. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. 
Look at verse 19. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Look at verse 20 towards the end. The king examined them, and he found them, oh, look at this, ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were all in his realm. But now here's what I want you to notice at the end of chapter 1, because I think... God's word is worded in a way that he wants to drive something home to us, that he wants it to pop. Look at that last verse in verse 21. Then Daniel, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. You say, so what, Brad? I'll tell you what. King Cyrus is four kings later, my friends. Daniel started as a teenager serving under Nebuchadnezzar. And as hard as that might have been, then he served under Belshazzar. Oh, but he's not done. Then he served under Darius. And then he served under Cyrus. Daniel spent 60 years, a little more than 60 years, serving God in four pagan administrations. You think he knows anything about trying to hold on to his integrity and live for God and at the same time work for someone that's very pagan? I suspect these four guys are more pagan than your boss. You think it's so pagan, it's so dark. I know. But other believers have done this before. He served for 60, and here's what I want you to note. And he served for 60 years with impeccable personal integrity. You say, Brad, how do you know that? We'll turn over to Daniel chapter 6. Look at Daniel chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. Daniel chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. Then this Daniel distinguished himself. He stood out. He distinguished himself. And here, look at me. Sometimes I hear Christians and they act like, because my boss or my company is not a Christian boss or company, it doesn't matter whether I, whether I work hard for them or not. Daniel distinguished himself. The way he did what he needed to do for those kings caused him to distinguish himself. This Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Here comes trouble, right? Do other people that work at a place, are they unaware of who is finding favor in the boss's eyes? Are they unaware of who's getting promoted and who's not? Uh, same kind of drama that goes on today is going on right here. So, verse 4, the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But look at this next phrase. But they could find no charge or fault. What? Now look at me. Is Daniel the second Messiah, sinless, flawless, perfect? Is he a human being? He's a sinner. But he has served in such a way. Can you imagine that? He has served in such a way that people who want to take him down and find a discrepancy, find some dirt on him, can't do it. And usually people who want to take someone down are quite motivated. They can't find anything but they could not find any charge or fault because he was faithful nor was there any error or fault found in him then these men said we shall not find any charge against this daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his god basically they're saying his job 
We're not going to find anything here. We're going to have to reach for his religion. And even then, if you know the story, right, what they have to do, they trick the king into creating a new law that put Daniel at odds with what was going on. They had to get a new law put in place that might cause him to be at odds with that because they knew he loved God. And he was going to keep praying even when they said, nope, you can't do that anymore. Here's my question for you. What about you? How hard would it be for those who work closest to you to find discrepancies in your work or less than honest record keeping? If someone wanted to take you down, expose stuff, make you look bad, would it be hard or easy based on the way you're living, the way you're doing your job? Do you cut corners? Do you pad your expense reports? Do you call in sick when you're not? Do you steal from your employer surfing the World Wide Web, checking Instagram, Facebook, just wasting time when no one sees you and no one's looking? And don't say, Brad, everybody does that. That's what's supposed to make us stand out as different. We don't. We don't. Here's what I think is interesting. I read an article in this past year about China. Christian-friendly place or not? Not. But you know what I read? It said business owners in China, Chinese business owners in China, seek out Christians. They want Christians to work for them. Why? They don't lie. They don't steal. They work hard when no one's looking. They want Christians I paused and I thought, is there a big enough distinction in America? Is the only thing they know about you is that you're obnoxious and difficult to deal with? Or would they say, oh my goodness, I know she's a Christian. I don't agree with that. I'm an atheist or I'm nothing or I'm an agnostic or whatever. But I'll take six more of her just based on the way she works, the way she does her job, the way he does his job. Give me six more of him, six more of her, and I can see past their religion because they're such good workers. Oh, it's quiet. And I knew it was going to be a quiet day, so I'm okay with that. Why should it be different, folks? Why, Why would I say... But it should be different for us because we work. Let's bring Ephesians 6 back into bear here, what we read. We work for King who? Jesus. Not Fidelity, not Citibank, not Red Lobster, not Beachwood School System, not any. You fill in the blank. That's not who you work for. If you're a believer, you work for King, say it. Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. How would you work? If you were more mindful, and you should be, does Jesus ever not see you around the corner? Does anything, anything elude him? And if you started saying, I'm not doing this for fidelity, I'm not doing this for X, Y, Z, I'm, how would it change how you do what you do if you started realizing more, I work for King Jesus? Never mind that I think I'm underpaid. Never mind that I think I got the shaft. Never mind that I think I should deserve a promotion. I haven't got it. You're not working. Hear me. Desire those things and pray to that end. But in the meantime, work hard unto King Jesus. 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 And see, I know what some of you might be thinking. Brad, it's not. Here's the deal, Brad. And I know. 
I know. My superiors and my coworkers actually encourage me to do wrong things. It's encouraged. It's rewarded in the marketplace. You may be told to look away and pretend something didn't just happen. You might be asked to lie about a bid or a sales number. You might feel pressure to sleep with the boss or put a good spend on on a year-end statement or overlook a shoddy product or tell somebody it's on the way when it's not even close to being on the way. And here's the deal. And you might be handsomely rewarded for doing so and punished or at least marginalized and passed over and limited in how far you can move ahead because you won't comply with functioning that way. That's an example of what I'm telling you. It could cost you. You say, because I won't do these things, I don't move ahead. Well, listen to me, friend. You don't want your moving ahead to be based on that kind of stuff. Hold to your integrity like Daniel, even if it costs you. So you better make up your mind ahead of time. Before you get into the workplace, you're going to live like Daniel, holding to your integrity. Because listen to me, your integrity, your integrity is the most important asset you take with you into the workplace. Never mind your skills, your integrity. And here's what you might not realize. You can't just section this thing off and say, well, that's how I'm doing at work because everyone else does that. And the rest of my life, I'm going to be ethical and honest. I'm going to have character. No, you're not. If you are compromising your integrity in the workplace, your life will be ultimately compromised. A grand canyon of ethical compromise starts with little cracks. Little cracks. And this just becomes who you are. You're not truthful. Be like Daniel. Be like Daniel. Second decision, number two. Decide that you're going to live like Mary. Decide that you're going to live like Mary, choosing what matters most, even in the face of a busy work schedule. Even in the face of a busy work schedule. Last week I talked to you about not getting sucked in to a work pace that leaves no space for unhurried time with God. Listen to me. You cannot head into the workplace day after day after day after day without spending time with God and expect to do well. No way. I would say it to you this way. Listen to me. There's no way you're going to live for God in the workplace unless you spent time with God before you got there. But some of you keep trying to prove that you can do that. Let me know, how's that working for you? Day after day, it's just coffee, good morning America, get the kids' lunches packed, rush, 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 rush. I don't have time to spend time with the Lord to read His Word, and here I go. How well are you doing with what comes out of your mouth? How well are you doing taking every thought captive? How well are you doing resisting temptations and not getting sucked in and looking and acting and being just like everybody else? Now, I know you don't get to choose sometimes what the expectations of your job. And the hours may be long and the pressures may be vast. But I pressed on you last week. You do need to control what you can control. Like when you go to bed, when you get up, and when you meet with God. And those three things work in tandem together like a threefold cord woven together that impacts your life in greater ways than you could ever 
imagine. Let me show you what it looks like to choose what matters most before you head into a busy work day. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I'm going to pick it up in verse 38. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now it happened as they went that Jesus entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about just a few things. Say it. Many things. Is that not a a description of what it starts to feel like? If you have a job with any measure of responsibility or pressure, do you not start to feel like you are worried and troubled about not just a few things, many things? Many things. You're worried and troubled about many things. Oh, look at verse 42. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Now look at verse 41 and you give me Jesus' assessment of Martha's condition. She's a hard worker. Be a hard worker. But there's something else going on that's not good. What, what, what does Jesus say about Martha? What's her condition? How does he assess it? She's distracted. She's worried. She's troubled. A lot of stuff. About a lot of stuff. And what's the answer? Go to work earlier. Stay longer. Work harder. Multitask. Nope. You can see the answer in verse 42. Look at verse 42. But one, one. How many? One thing is needed. Now, before we unpack it some more, I just want to ask you. Do you know what that one thing is that's needed most before you head into the workplace? Look at verse 38 because we see it. Mary did what? She sat at Jesus' feet and she heard his word. Now let me translate that for you into our day. That simply means you hit pause and you have some time to get quiet and to spend time with your Savior and to hear his word. Please don't think... I just sit there and wait for some word to pop into my head, some odd thing. I need a word from the Lord. Or, oh, I see a tree. I see a tree. What's that mean for today at work? What tree? How does that? Please stop. How do you get a word from God? You're sitting there. Please get quiet. Please get settled. Please get alone. But please do it with an open Bible in your lap. You want to hear from God and your Savior? Read his word. Read his word. Read his word. And I'm not saying this has to be an hour or 90 minutes. It can be 10 minutes. It can be 12 minutes. Longer would help. 
But I mean, listen, those of you that are just heading off with nothing, 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 nothing. And you say, it's so hard out there. It's so brutal. It's so foul. It's so perverted. It's so twisted. Then why are you so stupid as to go without God's help? I'm just befuddled. And I love you. But every time I bring up Bible reading, it's like eyes go to the floor. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact because I'm not reading my Bible. But, oh, I got favorite shows. I got all kinds of things. Don't talk to me about you can't read your Bible. You won't. And here's what you don't realize. As you do that day after day, you know what else you're saying? Without saying it out loud, as God watches you jump in the car and do it, I don't need you, God. It's arrogance. It's pride. How much did God say we can do in our own? Apart from me, you can do, oh, a lot, but really hard situations. Oh, I got a hard meeting today. I'm going to read my Bible and sit with the Lord. But regular days, got it. Apart from me, you can do. Some of you keep trying to prove that. Just nothing. That didn't go well at all. You can't do it. See, it's not a mistake. I hope you notice, often I'll try to read longer passages than what we're actually digging into. Why? I want you to get context context did you see what happened he's talking about work and what came up next and it's not unrelated like oh hit period new subject totally unrelated there's work and here's spiritual warfare that chapter we're reading about work goes right in finally brethren be strong in the lord and the power of his might if you're not getting alone and quiet and reading his word and putting on the belt of truth how, does, how do you get more faith? He talks about the shield of faith that will extinguish the fiery darts of the evil. Are there some fiery darts of evil in the workplace? Oh, my word. You want to extinguish them? The shield of and faith. How do you get more faith? Oh, I don't know. Faith comes by and hearing by the. Why do I talk about reading the Bible so much? Because we're so weak and impotent. And unable to do this without God's power and strength. You've got to have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, your feet shod with the gospel of peace, a shield of faith that you can extinguish, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Don't go into the workplace naked. Spiritually naked when you just roar off from the house day after day like that. And then you wonder why it's not going well. But here's what I also want you to notice. Who has to do it? I'm telling you to choose what matters most in the midst of a busy work schedule. Who has to do it? Look at verse 42. Mary has what? What's the word? Say it again. Chosen. I have to choose it. You have to choose it. No one else can do it for you. Listen to me. You will not drift into more time with God and spiritual rooted, I'm an oak of righteousness. You will not say... Oh my goodness, all of a sudden this year, I'm spending 45 minutes with the Lord and I never even meant to. (laughs) No, no. Drift is always away from the Lord, away from spiritual things and more to this world and more to the problems and more to worry and more, more, more. You will have to be intentional. You want to spend time with the Lord. You want to hear from him. You will have to choose it. Drift is away. You will never wander your way into a stronger spiritual position ever. I haven't met somebody yet. So I got to ask you. This is two weeks in a row I've kind of thumped this. 
So let's not just talk about it and you feel mildly bad. What do you need to change or rearrange in your life to do what Mary was doing in verse 38? To sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word. It's worth doing whatever it is. Figure it out. Set your alarm differently. Go to bed earlier if you need to. Cut out some TV. I don't know what it would look like for you, but you've got to have this. I've got to have this. Figure it out. You need to make a decision before you head into that workplace that indeed is dark and broken and difficult that you're going to choose what matters most before you get there. Number three, third decision that you've got to make. Decide that you're going to live like an alien regarding your money, knowing that you're not home yet. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Notice how Peter describes believers. Two words. What, what does he use to describe us? Sojourners and pilgrims. A sojourner is someone just passing through. If you read the rest of the New Testament letters, you'll hear other words like foreigner, stranger, alien, exile. All these words that describe us indicate two very important things that if you could keep it before you, it would change how you respond to what's going on all around you. I'm not going to be here long and I'm not home yet. Sojourner, I'm not going to be here long. Pilgrim, I'm not in the right place. Exile, I'm away from my real home. Foreigner, I feel odd. If you ever feel odd in the workplace, good. I'm not talking about just being weird. But because you're just not home, you've got other values, you've got other loves, you've got a bigger perspective, and you just feel like, I don't think I fit, but here I am. You think Daniel ever felt odd in those four administrations of pagan kings? No doubt. But that's what he got in trouble for. Daniel didn't try to do that without crying out and praying to his God and spending unhurried time with God. So he kept an eternal perspective in place while he did what he did. It changes how you respond to what's going on when you're aware, freshly aware. Everything in this world, like a magnet, sucks us down to right here, right now. This is the most important stuff. This is what matters. This is the only thing. The only thing that helps me break free of that is God's word. God's word. God's word. God's word. And I don't need it like once every 30 days. I need it like every day. Every day I got to be reoriented. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. I won't be here long, and I'm not home yet. I'm not home yet. I'm not home yet. And so he warns us not to get tangled up, 1 Peter 2, 11, in the lust of the, of the flesh, because it wages war against your soul. And so let me help you here. One of the most soul-destroying lusts of the flesh that you could get tangled up in, in is the love of money. And the workplace just reeks of it. Does it not? Just reeks of it. What are you driving? Where are you traveling? What are you wearing? Where are you going? What do you have? Are you building a new house or not? Oh, just, it just reeks of this. Let me show you a passage that should help us. Go to 1 Timothy 6. Aren't you glad you have a Bible? And if you don't, just feel bad. I feel bad. 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought how much? Say it again. Nothing into this world. And it's certain that we can carry, say it, nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Look at me and and let me help you not make a mistake here. The Bible does not teach that rich people are sinful and cannot be godly. In fact, if you read your Bible, how much of it? You'll see there are quite a few rich godly men and women, both Old Testament and New Testament. It is not a sin to be rich. In fact, we have people here in our church family that God has blessed tremendously that he uses them to fund both ministry here and way outside of these walls in amazing ways because they do not use it all on themselves. And so there's no sin in being rich. The verse says those who desire to be so listen you can be rich and not be in violation of that verse you cannot be rich and you say well that verse doesn't even speak to me there's no danger there because i'm not rich you could be the person violating this because you you want to be i desire to and when that becomes your desire you'll do stupid things like giving your bank account and social security number to a kenyan through email Oh, dear friend, my father died. He has a million dollars and I need a bank in America deposit. All you need to do is, who does this? People. They do. They do. Why? Because they desire to be rich and so sin makes you stupid. People do stupid stuff when you want to. That's what Ponzi schemes are all about. You're going to get a 67% return in three months. No, you're not. You're getting someone else's money and that might work for a while and it's all going to crumble. Those who desire to be rich fall into snares and traps and soul-destructive sins and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Notice also verse 10. For the, is money a root of all evil? Money can do great good. In fact, it takes money to do missions and ministry and help people. The... Love of money. And it doesn't even say it's the root. Is a root of all kinds of evil. Listen to me. If you get sucked into the love of money and the marketplace reeks with it, it will change you into someone you never meant to be. And instead of using it for the glory of God, you will use people In your constant chasing after it like an addict looking for her next hit. It can really become an addiction. Very much like drugs and alcohol. And it changes who you are. Some of you are sitting here. You're born again. You're a Christian. But listen to me. You've been sucked into the marketplace that reeks of. Here's all you got to have. You have to have all this stuff. You have to have all this stuff. And here's what you've done. You've created a pressure cooker of financial problems as you've continued to grab and strive after and then try to figure out how to pay for all of it. And some of the strains in your marriage, your friendships, how hard that job is, is exacerbated because you go there every day thinking, oh, this is so hard, but I have no other options because we are so in debt. We are in the biggest mess. 
Now, here's what I think is interesting to worth noting. Look at verse 10 in 1 Timothy 6. See the word greediness towards the end? Last week we were in Ephesians 5, 3 that used the word greediness. This is not the same Greek word. Last week in Ephesians 5, 3, it was the word I told you, the Greek word pleonexia. That means the annexing of more. I've got to extend my borders and get more and get more. This right here is the word orego. And it means to strive after or to exert great energy to attain it. To strive after and to exert great energy to attain it. So here's what I want you to understand. I hope you understand that the Christian life is not all about saying no to the wrong things. That won't last long. Some of you think the Christian life is just comprised of read your Bible, figure out what you're not supposed to do, find a verse that says don't do that, and then try to say no to that. Let me know how that works out. And this is the explanation for some of you saying, eh, eh, the Christian life doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't work like that. You will struggle to say no to making too much of the wrong things unless you have a greater burning yes. Unless you have a greater burning yes for something better. Unless you know, oh, I'm a sojourner. I'm not going to be here long. Oh, I've got a home and I'm not home yet. Unless you have a greater burning yes That's what it takes to free you up from making too much of all the wrong things. So I think this is interesting. I love this when I see it. This week as I studied, I was thinking that word greediness would be pleonexia again. I was like, oh, I hope it is. Then I can see, look, there's that word again. And it wasn't, but I wasn't disheartened. When I saw that it was the word orego, and it's only used three times in the New Testament, I thought, well, I'm going to see where else it was used. Guess where else it was used? There are words in the Bible that are neutral as far as is it good, is it bad. It depends on how it's being used. The word orego is being used in 1 Timothy 6.10 in a bad way. Greediness. The same word gets used in Hebrews 11.16. Now what do you know about Hebrews chapter 11? Some people call it the great hall of faith. By faith, Noah did this even though he was mocked. By faith, Rahab. By faith, Deborah. By faith, by faith, by faith. And you read through that and you see men and women sacrificing, even to the point of their lives, taking great risks for God and having courage. Why don't we see more of that today? Why are Christians so tame and so guarded and so cautious? Here's what I think. We've got too few Christians that have the mindset they did that I'm not home. I'm a sojourner. I don't have to grab all this stuff. I have something better. Here's what Hebrews eleven sixteen says with the same word. Talking about these men and women who did great things for God and did hard stuff. But now they desire a better, that is, heavenly country. Same Greek word. They were striving after, putting energy towards, I'm not home. It's coming. I don't have to have everything everybody else has. Mine's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I have a better country, a better home. If you don't know that and you're not aware of that, you will live just grabbing and striving after the same stuff the world does. You got to know that you have a better home. And you've got to be excited about that. And it frees you up to live loose to the things of this world. And some of you that struggle with money, listen to me. Part of it is, again, I love you, but I want to help you. You just keep thinking, when we have more, I'll give more. When we have more, I'll give more. Yeah, you'll probably never have more. When I was making $10,000 a year living in a trailer with two babies and trying to go to school, 
I tithed. 10% of my sad $10,000. You would think, well, God should understand. I'm in seminary. I'm getting ready to serve him. I just won't give for three years. Not what I did. And you know what he did? He blessed us so much that I kept a little notebook how many times groceries showed up, clothes showed up, someone paid for my tooth to be fixed. On and on, I have a record of God's faithfulness. And to this day, I haven't changed. I've increased how much we give as God's blessed us. But you just, once God sees, oh my goodness, when I send dollars to that family or that woman or that man, it doesn't stay with them. If he sees when you get it, done. He says, well, I'm looking for someone else. Just in the last week, I gave an amount away beyond my normal, but I pray about it for a week. And I'm not talking $10. It was quite a bit. That very next week, I received a windfall that I, no reason for me to know this was coming. I didn't. It was four times what I gave. Now, don't hear me saying I'm not cable television now, hair swept back. Send it in and you'll get the prayer shawl plus a four times blessing. Again, that, but I'm just saying I'm 54 and I've been living like this. Since I was single with very little income, and I'm, so, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not changing. It's unbelievable. We just keep giving. And my wife now, who at first was like, ah, really? Don't, we might need that. She's so done with that. She doesn't do that now. She's like, go for it, baby love. Because she's seen. It's like she does not need to worry about the big knees. Even though we have five kids, and I have three in college right now. We've got braces. and You can say, oh, we can't give right now. We can't not give. Because I don't want to try to have to meet all the needs we have with just my stuff. I want to see God bless us. You start giving and God says, oh, oh my goodness. If I put it towards them, it can go on to somebody else. And you can do that when you know I've got a better home. I'm not going to be here long. And please know, oh my goodness, there's so many of you that know this. I'm not, I'm not just preaching to no one does this but the big knees. Oh, there's so many of you. Thank you. But my heart goes out to those of you that haven't understood this yet. It is a great joy. God will take care of you. That's why these people in Hebrews 11 could by faith take risks, take risks, because they desired a better country. Better. I'm not home. This isn't home. Listen to me. In any culture where God is largely absent, And I hope you understand, that's where we are today in America. This is not a Judeo-Christian nation. We started there. It is unraveling at a pace that it will not be long. We will look a lot like England and Europe and some of the other places. That's where we're headed quickly. When, when, When you're a part of a culture where God is largely absent, people will try to fill the vacuum with anything. Sex, power, money, and the stuff that it can buy. So what's the answer? Well, the only way any of this is going to change, folks, only way it's going to change is through the power of the gospel as one man or woman at a time comes into a relationship with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. Only that. Only that. Why? Because we are first broken sinners with no power. And secondly, you have a very real wicked enemy That's seeking to wreak havoc in your home and in your relationships and in that workplace. Listen to me. As you heard Ephesians 6 after he talks about work. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Some of you think your biggest problem is your boss. It's not. Some of you think your biggest problem is that coworker. It's not. You've got a much bigger problem than that. There's an enemy, Satan. Spiritual powers of wickedness and darkness and the rulers 
of this age. So why would you go into the workplace unarmed, having not spent time with your Savior? Unbeliever, listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, start there. Don't try to ramp up your work ethic. Start there. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. You need Jesus Christ so that you'll never go into the workplace alone again. But Christians, I hope you've heard in the last two weeks, it is not automatic. You need to be filled with the Spirit and spend time with Jesus and His Word before you go in there or you will self-destruct in similar ways. But here's what's worse about it. To the shame of the name of Jesus Christ. As you go down, you'll take the name of Jesus with you. Listen, God never promised it would be easy. He promised he would be with you in your weakness in the workplace. And he promised that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Oh God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for giving us everything pertaining to life and godliness, including right orientation about our work. Thank you for reframing work in a way that changes how we see it so that it should change how and why we do it. Oh, make us those workers that would cause unbelieving employers to say, give me six more of her. Give me six more of him because we work for King Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.